Hi, I'm Dina. And I'm Anoshi. And, and this, this is Formalized Curiosity. Curiosity, a podcast of cross-cultural conversations in our quest to understand the world around us. This episode is part of our series on dysfunction, where we explore the ways in which our political, economic, and social systems malfunction, why it happens, and sometimes how to fix them. Welcome to another episode of Formalized Curiosity. Um, Today we're going to be talking about 13th, uh, which is a documentary that explores the history of Black oppression in the United States, uh, drawing a link between slavery and the modern day system of mass incarceration, the prison industrial complex, and the Black Lives Matter movement. We've chosen to discuss this documentary as part of our season on dysfunction uh, because, at least in modern day America, race relations are part of every aspect of our society, including the po- our political system, our social interactions, as well as our economic systems, for example, the welfare system. So we believe that understanding race relations will help us learn a little bit more about at least interpreting the dysfunction in the systems around us. Yeah, so um, we will to introduce you to the film if you haven't watched it already, which is okay. Uh, we will be talking a little bit about the um, the film in general, uh, going through some of the historic topics that they reviewed during the documentary before we will actually jump to any further conversation about it. And I, I think what is really interesting in the documentary is actually the this argument that they put through. And the argument is actually that slavery never really disappeared. It, it perpetuated since the end of the Civil War by this legal systems, the, the political systems, and uh, those systems systematically criminalize uh, the Black people in America. And it's it's very interestingly claimed in the documentary that uh, it just took very different forms throughout the American history, uh, and specifically in the criminal justice system in the U.S. So we will quickly go over the historical scope in, in the documentary over the different forms that slavery or this discrimination took over the course of history. I actually realized we forgot to give a little bit of context with regards to uh, the documentary itself. So um a couple of things I wanted to mention. So first, the documentary uh, 13th was actually, it's not a its not a particularly new documentary. It was first released on October 7th, 2016. It went directly to Netflix. Um, a couple of notable things about it. It was actually directed by Ava DuVernay, who's a notable Black film director who's most well-known for directing actually a number of films about Black history. I think most notably Selma and When They See Us. Uh, she actually was also the first black woman woman to direct a major motion picture film so she, and she achieved that when she directed a wrinkle in time which is a film adaptation of a book that i really loved as a kid it was madeline langle's book a wrinkle in time um so anyhow with regards to the documentary um Part of the reason why we're discussing it now was that is that in light of the Black Lives Matter protests in in early 2020, the film was actually re-released on YouTube 
for free. So anyone can actually go and watch this documentary now. Um, and since its re-release on YouTube, it has been viewed 7.6 million times with a surge in viewership during the mass protests uh, following George Floyd's murder. So we, although the, the documentary itself came out a long time ago, I guess, you know, five years ago, is that a long time? <laughs> but um, it really, in some ways, it remains incredibly pertinent. And it's a little bit depressing, actually, that many of the same issues uh from mentioned in the documentary are still persistent today and still very germane in the, in the context of Black Lives Matter. Um, maybe one other thing before we, before we jump into the nitty gritty of the documentary itself, I, I did want to mention that neither one of us has the lived experience of being a Black American. So, and, and to be to be completely honest, um, African American studies is not our main area of expertise. So I think that the comments that we make here really should be viewed as thoughts from ignorant but very compassionate. I hope compassionate and well intentioned outsiders. Um, and we're really looking to understand these issues. So um, that be said, with being said, be gentle on us. If we make mistakes, uh, we're, we're here to learn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely here to learn. Yeah. So the, the film is called the 13th and the reason for it is actually the 13th amendment in the U S constitution. Uh, it was actually passed in 1865. Uh, and, uh, I'll read part of it. So, uh, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So it's actually an amendment that's supposed to protect a person's right for freedom, with the exception of punishment or jail. And what they argue that this amendment is actually a loophole uh, that allows for a person to be stripped of their rights um, for freedom if they convict a crime. So they actually use this amendment in order to um, take people's freedom away. Definitely. Right. So as we mentioned in the documentary, the idea is that uh, even though slavery ended, it was perpetuated in, uh, I guess, the, the systems of racial subjugation and discrimination were perpetuated in various different forms, which have morphed and changed throughout history. So um, the movie itself uh, mentions I think, four different forms in which uh, this sort of race-based discrimination has taken place. Um, the first that, that comes up really early in the documentary is this idea of convict leasing, um, which was, which really, I mean, it seems like the most direct example of the way in which the 13th Amendment, quote unquote, loophole was taken advantage of. Um, the idea was that following the Civil War, uh, the Southern economies collapsed. They were highly dependent upon slave labor. And once there were no longer slaves, they couldn't depend upon that labor. But they could force Af or force black people into labor by by criminalizing them so southern legislatures passed a variety of different laws that criminalized fairly normal kinds of behaviors so for example like 
they made it a criminal offense to be homeless in some cases. And if you if uh, a black person was homeless, then that person could be put into jail. And once they were in jail, then the 13th Amendment loophole kicked in and they were able to be put to work as laborers. So, for example, they could be, quote unquote, leased to plantations or to other facilities and thus they could be used as a vehicle for the Southern economic system um, purely because of the fact that there's this loophole that if you've been punished for a crime, you can you can be put to work via involuntary servitude, essentially. Yeah, um, this, of course, was followed by or I know followed even like simultaneously as what what is known as the Jim Crow laws or the Jim Crow segregation. So so actually the Jim Crow laws in general is just a series of laws that was passed from 1865 and onwards in the Southern countries. It's a legal way to segregate the the black community uh, in the United States. And they, they called it sort of separate but equal but majorly separate, right? And, and just a side note, because it's something I, I learned recently. So Jim Crow is actually not a politician or a legislator as you would expect it to be. Uh, it's rather a blackface character from a song and dance from 1828, uh, which was like a racist imitation and mockery of the black people. And I, I think just the fact that this what was chosen to to be called after already shows you the state of mind that's been there no i think so just to jump in there i think that that is um it's a really important point that you're making um so for example in in today's times of course there are many prominent people who are being taken to task for uh, for wearing blackface, either let's say as part of a Halloween costume, etc., or you know, in other forms of entertainment, and I, I think that there there are a lot of questions about you know why is that such a serious offense, and the fact that you can tie blackface uh, directly back to the notion of Jim Crow uh, is some. I think it provides an important historical context for for why those sorts of actions can't be tolerated in, in our society today. Thus far, we've discussed two different forms by which um, the sort of racial discrimination in the Black population has continued. So uh, one thing I wanted to quote from the movie was that uh, Brian Stevenson, who's a, a famous lawyer and legal activist, uh, says, that the prison population in the United States was actually largely flat throughout most of the 20th century. But from the 1970s on, we began an era which has been defined by the term mass incarceration. Um, and this arose following, as I said, the passage of the Civil Rights Act, which at least on a legal level made it uh, illegal and also not really socially acceptable to discriminate against Black people on the basis of race. This created a major schism within the party, whereby Southern Democrats, who were formerly within the Democratic Party, now didn't have a party that would allow them to continue to discriminate in the way that 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 they kind of wanted to. Um, and so 
This created an opportunity for Nixon to develop a political strategy, which is today known as the Southern strategy, um, based around law and order. When it came right down to it, it actually was very successful then. So this was to say, like in the movie, they make the case that this idea of law and order was part and parcel of of so-called dog whistle politics, where law and order actually meant anti-Black and was in a way signaling to Southern Democrats that they had sympathy within the Republican Party. So it's it, it was so this was this this idea of like creating a more insidious form of racial segregation simply by changing the language used around it. Yeah, it's it's just insane. It's just the political game is so complicated, but if you read between the lines, it's basically, well, we can't do the the very direct discrimination anymore. We can't use some words or some language. Mm, let's just change the language. Let's just change the wording and use criminality to as another form to do the same thing. Right. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> it's amazing, right? And of course, it didn't stop with Nixon. The movie continues to say that Reagan took this this idea of law and order politics and transformed it into a a deliberate strategy with the war on drugs, um, which focused primarily on criminalizing drug activities in urban centers. Incidentally, this was codified in 1994, most notably by the Democratic president, Bill Clinton, who passed um, this major, major crime bill that created a lot of the unjust pol- uh, policies and conditions within the criminal justice system that we see today. I think the the parts of the bill that are most notable are the uh, mandatory minimums for a variety of different drug crimes, even very minor drug crimes, um, as well as militarization of state and local police forces, uh, both of which, of course, have, are are issues that we're still talking about to this day. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's it's very um the, the metamorphose of of discrimination that that happened throughout the years is is very strikingly and but at the end I, I think if we look at the results um we look at what's today and it's this mass incarceration and i think the most convincing part is looking at the numbers so if we just talk about the numbers and there is a really nice quote that i like by uh, the former president barack obama um which is the united states is home to five percent of the world's population but 25 percent of the world's prisoners oh my gosh the movie opens with that quote <laughs> yeah exactly um, and and I, I mean i heard it before but then you hear it again and maybe you suddenly actually listen and it strikes you and you're like what why yeah. I actually, I remember the follow-up to the, so the quote, it, the movie opens with the quote by Barack Obama, and then it follows up with a, uh, Van Jones, uh, a political commentator speaking, and he says something like, um, 25% of the prison population is in the land of the free. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, and and I think 
if we continue with numbers, it doesn't get any better, right? Um, so I, another quote by Brian Stevenson, we had a prison population of 300,000 in 1972, but today we have a prison population of 2.3 million. It's 97% of all people that are locked up have plea bargains, but that means that no real trial was held and they weren't actually found guilty. The Black community, and this is a number I know that for certain in Israel going to surprise some people, but the Black community is, constitutes 13.4% of the U.S. population. Um, I know that a lot of people think that it's more, but it actually makes up uh, 38.5%. This is updated to today. Uh, 38.5% of all prisoners. So it's three times the amount you would expect right. by random, I don't know, represented by their percentage in the population. And, and if we like take a, another sentence just to finalize all of it, is that nearly 30% of all Black male population of Alabama today has permanently lost their rights to vote. Uh, and this is, of course, due to criminal convictions, because if you are convicted of a felony um, in certain states, you lose your right to vote. Right. And that is just the tip of the iceberg, right, in terms of the consequences of becoming a convicted felon. You look at these numbers alone, and they are alarming. But I think when put into the context of the documentary, which shows the history of discrimination and that this is just the latest form, it really starts to feel like there's something rotten at the core of American society that, um, that really needs to be addressed. Yeah. And, and you cannot push back and say, well, Things were bad, but well, not anymore. We don't have slavery anymore. So now things are okay. No, things are not okay. We're talking about current numbers. We're not talking about historical numbers. Absolutely. Yeah. And one other point that was actually made in the documentary related to this and to the Black Lives Matter movement is that um, this sort of disproportionate criminalization of Black Americans within the judicial system um, as well as in the media, which is something that they talk about, it really gives uh, American society the license to assume that Black lives aren't of value in today's society. All right. So with that being said, we, we've provided a fairly comprehensive description of of what, what actually went on in this movie. And one thing I will say is that um, so Ava DuVernay, the director, she did an interview with Oprah, uh, which is actually also available on Netflix, where she talked about um, how she managed to cram so much information into a hundred minute documentary. And it turns out that this was, in fact, a very deliberate choice. Uh, she actually had an option through Netflix of making multiple episodes. But as a director, she felt that no one was going to sit through that many episodes of just like negativity after negativity after negativity. So instead, she tried to just create a very comprehensive picture of the whole situation 
in a hundred minutes, I, I think I can't, I can't underscore what a tremendous feat that was. And the fact that like, it took us this long to summarize, every, you know, the main, the various points that were being made in this documentary, I think is really a testament to how much information is packed in there. So um, I felt like I learned, I learned a lot. So you get a lot of bang for your buck for that hundred minutes. Wow. That, that's actually very interesting. The, the fact that she could have made multiple episodes, but yeah. chose not to. Um, it definitely, the, the effect is over, overwhelming, the, the, the amount of information and the impact you get. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like you, I think if anything, the, the clip at which it moves, it has this feeling of like a tidal wave coming over you. Um, and I don't know, I, I came out the end feeling pretty stunned by, by the amount of information that came through, but, um, but I think it makes a case very clearly. So with that being said, Dina, what was the most surprising thing you learned from watching this documentary? So much information, so many facts. Yeah, there, there were a lot of things. I mean, as you said, so much information and, and a lot of it I didn't know or didn't know in the right context. But I think there were a few, definitely the fact that convicted felons cannot vote was, was surprising because in Israel, we don't have it. Uh, in fact, in Israel, even prisoners can vote. They vote in prison. Um, I later learned that not every crime uh, takes you the right to vote, but actually it's specific crimes that then you're considered a felon and it's in specific states. And you also have policies between different states. So e either it's for life or a certain period. Right. Um, but I, I guess what's interesting, that's actually originally in Israel in 1949, uh, voting was also not allowed to prisoners. Uh, like after you were released, you were okay. But to prisoners, it wasn't allowed. But you could be elected even if you are currently in jail. Um, but then a few years later, it was changed and the whole thing was omitted. So now prisoners can vote. And Wow. Uh, do you know why it was omitted? No, I don't know. I actually tried to see like what, what was the influence behind it. Um, and I couldn't find a specific explanation. So if anyone knows, um, it's, it's actually interesting. Too. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So yeah, so that one was very surprising. Also, another thing was that the whole motivation behind the drugs uh, that started by Nixon and expanded by Reagan, as you, you talked about before, uh, was racial. I had no idea that this, this was the motivation behind it. I actually have to say that I wasn't fully convinced by the evidence in the documentary that this, in fact, was the mo main motive behind it. But I definitely think it was part of it. And I think it's enough even to look at the, the, the striking difference between the punishment for possessing crack, which is considered uh, a Black community drug, and possessing cocaine, which was considered a like white community. Right. Um, 
to see that there's definitely something very wrong. And in fact, it got me thinking even more. And, and they said it in the documentary as well. Well, for me, it's so obvious today that possessing a drug is a crime. But in fact, if we're talking about possession of a drug, especially for self-usage, is it really a crime or is it a health problem? Yeah, no, it's a it's an interesting point. Um and I think it's it's something that has been brought up, I think, in in recent years, uh, this idea that the criminalization of of drug activity allowed, again, supported the dehumanization of those who were involved in it. It makes it easier to put them in jail. It makes it easier to treat them poorly. But it can also be treated as a symptom of a much deeper ill within our society related to poverty, et cetera, as being kind of the antithesis of that idea of humanity. Uh, yeah. And, and like interesting fact that, that I also learned recently is that, but it's actually not a new thing in Canada, in Vancouver, there is this uh, chain of supervised injection clinics. It's called Insight, where they allow drug addicts or people who want to shoot drugs, they, they can come in there and they uh, give them uh, clean needles. And they also have like um, a medical staff uh, overseeing the whole thing. Um, and, and at least from what they published, they published a, an article about it, uh, like a scientific article. They published that it was a 35 percentage decrease in overdose death is around the sites of insight. Wow. Um, and they also, they actually also have, I think it's a fairly new thing, but they also have like um, an additional part to it, which is like a recovery center. I, I don't know if this is the way to go or there are other ways, but there's definitely, there's definitely a reason I think to open your mind a bit and think about things that you might've considered the truth so far. Yeah. Well, I think like at minimum, this provides such a different paradigm for how to treat drug crimes. If anything, this represents the clearest example of what it means to treat drug usage as a health problem rather than a criminal problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, so for you, Manoshi, what, what was the most surprising thing you learned? I think one of the most surprising things to me actually was uh, the discussion of ALEC, uh, an organization, which came pretty late in the documentary. ALEC is, it's an acronym. It stands for the American Legislative Exchange Council. Um, and as it's described, ALEC is a nonprofit organization. Uh, it's a conservative organization that uh, is a brings together state legislators and private sector representatives who then draft and share legislation, which is then distributed to various state legislatures and federal leg legislatures across the United States. It's specifically mentioned in the context of this documentary because ALEC was responsible for drafting a lot of the bills that have had direct impacts on criminal justice in, in the modern era. 
the documentary makes the argument that ALEC is this vehicle for stealth lobbying. So basically, these private sector members can influence legislation in a way that ultimately helps their financial bottom line. There was a quote from, from the documentary saying, the corporation Walmart was a longstanding member of ALEC at the time it adopted the so-called Stand Your Ground law. It's a law that created an atmosphere where gun sales boomed. Walmart is the biggest seller of long guns in the United States and has been the largest re retailer of bullets in the world. So it's reasonable to think that Walmart benefited from the stand your ground law that Alec pushed. One of the main limitations, I think, of the discussion in the documentary was that it created this causal link between the corporate interests and the passage of these laws. And since none of us were in the room I think it's hard to know whether or not that causal link exists, but I think suffice it to say, these laws could plausibly have impacted the profits of the corporations that were affiliated with ALEC. Um, so I think that understanding these conflicts of interest are, are, are important. It's important for us as a public to realize. Um, so yeah, I, I think that this ultimately was a pretty small part of the documentary, but for me, this was also one of the newest parts. And how ridiculous what was actually shown in the documentary that politicians get a copy of the law that they're supposed to pass. Right. There was literally this clip in the movie where in Congress, one politician holds up a bill and says, did you get this from Alec? The other guy says, no, what? I don't know anything about Alec. And then he's like, well, you left the Alec logo at the top of this legislation. <laughs> In Israel, for example, I, know I support this, uh, we call it the uh, people's lobby. So it's sort of like, a, we understand that there is lobbying by corporates. So we want also lobbying by people. So the people would be the benefited part um so there is a, an organization that you can donate or you can support and then it has lobbies as well but they lobby the people's interests whatever we decide we also have like democratic voting there yeah i understand that lobby is a major part of politics but i definitely didn't imagine it being this way um so i think that was definitely an eye-opening for me i, I don't if it happens the same here as well, but from um, if I have to guess, if it if it happens in the U.S., it's definitely not just the U.S. It probably takes place in many other places as well. Yeah, and I think I also want to emphasize that you know Alec was exposed very publicly uh, around ten years ago, so it's possible that Alec isn't even the main perpetrator anymore. Um, but rather there, there are other organizations yet unknown or yet exposed um, that are kind of doing the same thing. But I think the bottom line of, you know, corporate interests in politics is probably a good one to keep in mind. Yeah, especially if they if they play dirty. Yep. Um, what, what would you say that was the main feeling for you just or the, the main reaction you felt when when you saw the movie? Wow. Um I I was sad and shocked and overwhelmed uh watching it. I like I said, I you know, the information wasn't totally new, but by the same token, uh you know, and we talked about this a little bit having 
what appeared to be the full historical picture laid out in a hundred minutes in such a compelling way, I think was incredibly impactful. I cried watching the movie. Um, And so, and it really made me feel like, oh, something has to be done. Maybe I need to do something about this. Um, Incidentally, I want to talk about this point specifically because Again, this in this interview between Ava DuVernay and Oprah, she talked about her thought process in, in trying to come up with the ending for 13th. Um, originally, apparently, the idea was to create a montage of the professors and activists and you know all the people that she interviewed as part of this documentary. It was actually a really large group of people. Um, just to show that, like, look, there, you know, there are some great people who are on the case, like the work is getting done. But she specifically chose not to do that because she felt like it would let the viewer off the hook. The idea would be like, all right, look, those guys have it under control. I don't need to do anything. So instead, she actually ended the film with uh, what she called, I guess, images of black joy. Um, so it was like, Black people living their lives, being with their families, kids running through sprinklers. That was an amazing. There was a you know a couple kids running through a sprinkler. That was an amazing clip. Um, and I think that the I, the idea of that ending was to say these lives matter. Yeah, I, I think that she had a she had a quote actually. This is 150 years of oppression that we have to start to fight. But that through it all, there has been survival and joy. These lives are what the movie is about. Um, so this is to say, if, if her intent was to galvanize, I it certainly uh, had the correct impact on me. Mm-hmm. What about you? What was what was the main feeling that came up when you watched the movie? Yeah, um, I think the same as you. I, I definitely felt sad. I, I feel... Uh, I think it's maybe a slightly different type of sad because it's like an outsider's sad. It's it's not the society I I live in, but but definitely the impact of seeing a lot of scenes, especially the one that involved in injustice or violence against innocent people, just because of something they have no control on, being born with a different color skin. That that definitely made me really sad. I think another feeling that I I experienced was I don't know if it's a feeling, but again, I'm I'm not American, and I've actually never visited the U.S. But we'll get you we'll get you here sometime. Yeah, one day. Um, I really want to take you to a Walmart <laughs> with all the guns, uh, but yet so many stereotypes have been implemented in in my mind because most of the films and most of the TV that we see here is actually American. So I feel like though I've never been there, uh, so much impacted me from from just seeing the films and, and watching TV and some social media, though I'm not very active on social media, but still. So so I do feel like though I've not actively lived there I was subjected to all those stereotypes and and I I would like to shake a lot of them off but I think for everyone 
if if we really want to be honest we're, with ourselves, we we should close our eyes, imagine a black young person, and then ask ourselves whether we will be more surprised to find out whether this person is a criminal or whether he's a very successful student, entrepreneur, businessman. And really think about it, because if if the answer is the first one, then this is actually a, a like a, a signifier of the fact that you are biased and you probably project your bias outside as well. Yeah. No, I well, first of all, I appreciate you being so so candid. Um, I think very few people would have the guts to be. Um, but I feel like your point too also speaks to this notion. I guess there's a phrase that's thrown around representation matters. Um, and, and a lot of people talk about it in the context of, you know, if, if black children can see um, black people in prominent roles in movies, doing interesting and exciting things, being full fledged characters, it'll change the way that they perceive themselves. But I think that you highlight another aspect of it, which is that representation also matters in a global context, which is to say that, the stereotypes, the the ideas about American society and the role that Black people play within it, they are perpetuated through our media, and then that gets spread worldwide. Um, so I think it presents yet another reason why why media representation needs to change. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I think it it really sort of leaks out of the U.S. through the film industry, through the social media. So. Uh, it has a very, very strong effect. Definitely. Yeah. So uh, actually on a completely different note, but in the documentary, they actually included um, a few notable conservative voices, including Newt Gingrich and and Grover Norquist uh, and, and also others. Um, so what what did you think about that? Did, did you understand the goal behind it? Do you think it was actually a, a good thing? Yeah, wow. Um, I think your question touches on a really interesting part of the documentary. The director did a tremendous number of interviews for this film. Uh, according to one interview, she uh, she stated that she interviewed close to 200 people for two hours each over a period of two years to make this documentary. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. And only 30, 38 of them show up in the (laughs) documentary itself. And, And of course the reason it relates to your question is that of those 200 interviews, she says that roughly 40% were of the, I mean, I guess you could call them of the conservative persuasion. The, the choices of who to include were actually quite interesting. So you mentioned Newt Gingrich. Um, and for those of you who don't know who he is, he was um, a Republican, the 50th Speaker of the House. Um, and I, I actually saw him described somewhere as like the father of modern polarization in American society. So this is to say like, not a guy that you would think would be in support of criminal justice reform, but actually in the documentary, he states that the laws that were passed in the 90s were unjust, and he actually has been an activist for criminal justice reform for the last 10 years. 
So this was to say, like, knowing what I knew about him, I was absolutely shocked to see him in the movie. Um, and then even more shocked to hear his position on racial justice. Um, so I think on some level, simply including Newt Gingrich, um, I, I think it really supported the narrative to hear that even people that I would have thought would have come out um, trying to make excuses for the laws that have been passed, et cetera, admitting that they were wrong, um, I think it strengthened the case overall. Um, like I said, I mean, as you mentioned too, there were two other people who I guess were conservatives who were included in the documentary. One was Grover Norquist. Um, he's a Republican and the founders, uh, founder of Americans for Tax Reform. So his main issue isn't necessarily criminal justice. Um, and then the other one was um, Michael Huff or Ho. I, I don't actually know how to say his last name, but he's a Republican serving in the Maryland State Senate. And he is affiliated with ALEC, which we have talked about. They, I, th I think, were much more confusing in their in their stance, but also on yeah, on their contribution to the documentary. So for example, Grover Norquist, um, he basically said that, yeah, this was problematic, all these laws that were passed, but it wasn't just because there were white people out there who were bad and racist and really were out to get black people. It was sort of just, this was like collateral damage um, from some strategic political moves that people made. So if anything, it was a fairly weak defense of the system. And then Michael Huff, who, like I said, is affiliated with Alec, presented an even stranger case. Like, I mean, I would say like in his interview, he looked very uncomfortable to be there. And it seemed like he just um, he was saying like, yeah, maybe in the past, that's how Alec was. But today, Alec, Alec has nothing to do with social issues. So the three people who were chosen to represent any sort of conservative stance didn't present a compelling counter argument to whatever was being presented in the documentary. Um, I guess, you know, a, a charitable interpretation of that is that there is no compelling counter argument. But then I, I think that there's a real question of, you know, what was the utility in in showing these fairly weak counter arguments. Exactly. I mean, I, I, I really felt like while this documentary had so much going on for it, it this part was actually not so good. I, I mean that I would actually rather have it be like one-sided documentary and, and like being okay with it because saying something like, hey, we present this one side which was underrepresented until now but this is what we show and leave it to the people to make their own research because the other voices have been said and and shown for so many years so you could find the other like the opposing arguments yourself uh, but if you do choose as a documentary to show both sides i feel like you need to do a better job at it and and be more balanced I think I experienced it slightly different than you did because I didn't know that the people that you mentioned were notable Republicans. For me, they were just politicians. So if you look at it from my point of view, so they showed only three people. 
two of them had very little airtime. The third one, um, Michael Hoff, got the most airtime or most attention and was so not convincing and even slightly, I'm sorry, ridiculous. I mean, he was feeling very uncomfortable, but I, I was very uncomfortable for him as well. Those are probably not the most convincing people we can bring. Yeah. So with that being said, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what scenes from the film stuck with you long after you finished it and why they were so compelling to you. Oh, man. Yeah. So I actually like I think a lot of things stuck with me and a lot of things I thought about later on. But there was this one scene with it was like um he, like historical video footage um of a man in a hat uh like walking in the street and then a white mob chasing him and pushing him and he just takes his hat puts it back continues walking and and trying to look dignified the whole time and I actually really tried to locate the video to understand what exactly is happening there. I couldn't find it, but I did find this description of, of the scene. It's a bit long. I don't know. I'll, I'll read part of it. The grainy black and white archival footage that Duvernay calls the man with that is of a tall, dignified black man wearing a suit and a hat, trying to cross the street as a mob punches, kicks, hits, spits on him. The man, as Duvernay learned, uh, was a journalist. Peter died from the injuries sustained from the attack. Yet each time his hat fell, he picked it up, dusted it off, put it on, and continued walking. The emotional clip appears twice in the nearly two-hour documentary. It's the moment that steered the most emotion for her throughout the transformative film. And this is by Golding. It was written in Vibe. Um, but I don't know, something about like how unjust and unfair the scene is. And this is even before I learned that he died from the injuries. It, it really stuck with me and, and it made me cry, really. It's just so unfair. And all, like the fact that all this man wanted was to walk in the street with a hat on. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and we actually, we discussed this scene at length, uh, before we, before we recorded this, um, as you mentioned in the documentary, it's shown a couple of different times. The second time really, really hit me because, uh, that scene was shown for a few seconds and then it flipped to a scene from a Trump rally, where a black protester was basically being pushed and hit and spat at in a very similar way. Um, And I think, uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit. It was actually that juxtaposition with the second scene that really got me because I think there was just this, this feeling of overwhelming sadness and despair and fear actually associated with it for me. It was just, I think just, it it felt, it feels so unfair that the idea that, that these people simply could not exist in a particular space because of their skin color, their skin color pulls them out as being someone who doesn't belong, for example, at this Trump rally. And, um, 
and and then they're being they're being tortured for it um or being being kicked out so yeah no i think it it really it really stuck with me too yeah for you uh, as an american do you think that this tension that you have around race in the us is different from other perhaps manifestations of of minority hatred and and other groups the group dynamics of of people wanting to feel superior yeah that's a <laughs> i think it's a really deep question um when it comes to race relations in the united states uh, i think there there are clear unique aspects to to the situation. So for example, I mean, slavery is often referred to as America's original sin. And the fact that our current state of race relations was born from this master slave relationship. I, I think, I mean, it's certainly not unique, but it's quite unusual in the broader context of, um, of race relations worldwide. But I think this is to say that you also point to the fact that Within human societies, there's this clear rep- repetition of people separating themselves into in-groups and out-groups and wanting to basically promote themselves by feeling superior to to the out-group. Um, I mean, this is something we saw when we read Why We're Polarized, but um, I think this this really is a much more pervasive pattern outside of the United States. Um, incidentally, uh, while Googling around and, and studying 13th, um, I happened upon this book called Cast, The Origin of Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson. She's an American journalist. And in that book, she actually makes the ex- explicit case that the racial tensions of the United States are actually part of this much broader uh, notion of caste systems, which of course we've heard about in, in global context in India and other places. Um, there was actually a really compelling section of the um, of an essay that she wrote, which I think was an excerpt from the book, where she tells the story of Dr. Martin Luther King visiting India. So uh, as part of his trip, he goes to this small village in Kerala, and then um, he goes. He's in front of a school. There are tons of children. The principal introduces him as a fellow untouchable from the United States of America. Shocking. <laughs> and I th- at the time, apparently, uh, Martin Luther King was was totally shocked by the comparison and actually a little insulted by it because he was just like, what? Like, <laughs> this is totally not an analogous situation. But um, over time, he actually came to view this as being a, an apt comparison. Um, there's actually a quote from the article that says, in that moment, he realized that the land of the free had imposed a caste system not unlike the caste system of India, and that he had lived under that system all his life. Ava DuVernay is actually making a another film based on this book. So I think I would ha- I would uh, hasten to say that maybe she sees the parallel as well. So- <laughs> <laughs> Right. Don't great minds think alike. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm actually really interested to see how she takes the notion of race relations in the United States and, and treats it in a, in a much more global perspective. But I think what's what's interesting about the 
um, the the racial hierarchy in the U.S. is the amount of media coverage that it, it gets. Do do you actually think that it's maybe unfair, given that, as you said, it's so universal? Maybe it's unfair that the the racial hierarchy in in the U.S. is so infamous, or maybe and this is just a maybe, right? The fact that it is discussed so much is actually like perhaps the first step in order to to repair it, that it's done at, at one step more than the others. So first of all, I think it, it's good that you offer this, this context that, um, because obviously we see a tremendous amount of coverage around um, racial tension in the United States within the U.S., but it's important to know that it's certainly covered extensively outside the United States as well. Um, but I guess the question that you're asking is, you know, is that is that justified given given the fact that other countries certainly have their own form of racial or social tensions, caste systems themselves, for example, that um, that are less covered by the media and. I, I don't really have the context to judge the severity of, you know, injustice in the United States versus in other countries. But um, I think the coverage itself can serve an important role in in kind of bringing issues to light that might not otherwise be discussed in other countries. Uh, to me, that feels like the silver lining of the coverage. It's a, the more well known it is, the more maybe the easier it is for for other societies to face the issues that are present within them. Um, that's not to say that like the U.S. should be let off the hook in any sense of the word. I think that everything that we're talking about, all the injustice is true and it's bad and it needs to change. Um, but like I said, if there's any silver lining, it's that it creates a dialogue that um, that perhaps other countries can can use uh, to their own purposes. Um. Yeah, I think conversations, uh, talking about things is is important and um, giving legitimacy to conversations is important. Yeah. So actually, you know, related to that, I, uh, I wanted to close out this discussion by by talking about the the racial divides in in Israel, because I'm hoping you can shed some light on whether or not there are parallels. Um, so one of the things that I noticed living in Israel is that the dominant ethnic divide certainly isn't between white and black. I think, I mean, the idea of white versus black is not really even a major concept when it comes to discussing society. Uh, instead, the major divisions seem to be between Jews and Arabs, for example, or maybe Jews and non-Jews more generally. Um, but what do you think are maybe the similarities and differences um, within Israeli society about the dynamics that, that you saw watching 13th? I think that's that's a very important but hard question. Um, I, I will try and approach it or answer it um, carefully, but this would obviously be my point of view and not representing Israel or, or all Israelis or any of those. So just first to start with something that you mentioned that there is no black and white in Israel. 
just to point out, it, there is no clear divide between black and whites. I mean, we do have black people living in Israel. There are, for example, Ethiopian Jews. We also have people from Eritrea and Sudanese people. So there are black people. There's just like the divide is not that clear, I think, uh, like the racial divide. There's another divide that perhaps should be mentioned in, in a quick sentence. Um, which is the divide within Jews. So actually there um, I would say two main origins of Jews living in Israel. One we call Ashkenazi Jews and the other one is Mizrahi Jews. Ashkenazi Jews are Jews mostly from Europe or European countries. Mizrahi Jews are mostly Jews coming from uh, African Asian countries that are Arabic countries. And um, you can discuss a lot about this divide, but this is definitely an existing divide within Jews that could be mentioned and, and discussed as well. Um, but the, the divide that you were referring to was the divide between um, Jewish people and Arab people. You said Jewish and not Jewish. I think the fairest one to say would be Jews and Arabs because most of the non-Jews people in Israel are Arabs. And this, I would say, is the most clear one. Um, so generally speaking, I think just to make things clear, when we can talk about Palestinians and we can talk about Israeli Arabs. And at least the way that I would refer to them right now I would be referring to Israeli Arabs, which are Israeli citizens. They can vote. They're just Arabs by ethnicity. Um, while Palestinians, um, they're Arabs that live in the territories, could be uh, the, uh, Gaza, could be the Western Bank. Um, so, But I think in order to fairly compare it to the 13th, you need to compare citizens. So I would be during the comparison between Israeli Jews and between Israeli Arabs. Yeah, that's an important distinction to make. Um, and, and just for context, what percentage of the population of the uh, Israeli citizen population is, um, is Arab? So it's around 20%, 21% of the population is Arab. Um, yeah, and, and thus the army is not very relevant to the context. The the police is more relevant because the army is the one that would be relevant to the outside of Israel, but within the, the judicial system within Israel, the police is more relevant. Right, yeah. So I think it's important that you make this distinction. There's a, you know, what I think what makes mainstream media in the United States is often the relationships between the Israeli army and um, Arab or Palestinian Arabs within um, the Gaza or the West Bank. Um, but you're going to be talking about Israeli Arabs um, who are full-fledged citizens within, uh, with it, living within Israel. Yeah. And some of them might uh, consider themselves Palestinians, might call themselves Palestinians. But again, as, uh, as I'm saying, this is just my way of, of comparing it to the 13th. So I'm talking about uh, Israeli Arab citizens um, and, the, and Israeli Jews. 
a word about the Israeli police. The, the police in Israel is actually considered rather weak. Um, so it would rather deal with solvable, easy problems than dealing with real issues that need intervention. So this Israel, so like police violence is not very common thing. And we wouldn't, in, inside Israel, we wouldn't associate police with violent acts. If you compare it to the U.S., in the U.S., there's 10 times more chances of being killed by the police than in Israel. And that's, that's of course, accounting for the differences in population size, right? And that's, yeah, again, it's the chances. It's not that. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, however, if you do try and look at the data from the past six years, you, you can see that 14 civilians were killed by the police in Israel, and nine of them um, were Arabs, which is 64%, while the Arabs uh, population, as we said, is something like 20% of the Israeli population. So there is a definite bias here. But I'm not sure about statistical significance since the numbers are really low. At the same time, uh, if you look at the violence rate inside the Arab community, um, it's actually pretty high. So 45% of all homicides in Israel that took place uh, were inside the Arab community. 40% of all prisoners in Israel are Arabs. Uh, in fact, less than 50% are Jews. Um, and in 2008 alone, there was a rise of 8.4% in violent uh, cases in the Arabs community. So I guess the two real questions that we need to be asking ourselves is, one, is the Jewish majority um, in general and any racism that... Uh, are direct or indirect, are the causes for the high criminal rate within the Arab community. Um, and the second one, is the rate of the police violence against Arabs higher from what you would expect based on random interactions that are based on crime rate alone? Spoken like a true data scientist. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think those are, those are the questions because I can't imagine in my head people arguing, well, there is a bias in the police violence because there is more crime in the Arab community. So they have more interactions. So there must be, so it's, it's a direct cause for that maybe, but then we need to be asking ourselves did we cause the violence, the, the high rate of violence? And is it even higher than you would expect it to be? Right. Yeah. And I think this is this is a really important parallel to American society as well, because, I mean, we talked about how the conservative viewpoint wasn't very well fleshed out in 13th. But I think if there is a conservative viewpoint, it seems to be that um criminality of various sorts is higher within the black populations in the United States. And therefore that alone can explain why, okay, they have more interactions with the police. Hence there's more police violence. Hence they're in jail at higher rates than are, than, than their proportion of the population would suggest. However, I, I think that, as you said, it's a rigorous, it's a rigorous statistical question that even if you account for the increase, um, 
or I guess the increased rates of violence within those communities, which themselves are born from, you know, poverty, socioeconomic stress, potentially, et cetera. Um, is that sufficient to account for the, for example, the rates of incarceration that you see? Um, I'm not aware of such a study that makes that distinction so clear, but somehow it seems like in politics, we've ended up in this loop where, where one side insists that the high rates of crime in the population are purely to, are purely to blame for it. And on the other side, people say that it's purely um, police and bad laws, et cetera, that are, that are to blame for it. When in reality, it's, it's kind of a mixture of those two things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, there is no uh, good research, at least not one that I could find to actually answer that. Um, and yeah, I, and I can't blame both sides because I think also as an individual, part of the majority today, you don't live the history, you live the present and you may, you you don't understand all the all the events and everything that led to the current situation, you just see the current situation, which might, which might be very high um, uh, criminal rate, a lot of violence, and then all you want is this to be dealt with. While actually, in in a direct or indirect way, you might be the cause to it, and a very uneven starting positions are the cause to to that, right. but it's hard to explain it to an individual that that wasn't part of history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why documentaries like these are so important, I think, for, for, for providing that kind of context. And of course, you know, no such documentary to my knowledge has been made about, about Israel and Israeli Arabs in particular. Not one that I am aware of. And if anyone knows about any documentary, I'm, I'm really... Um, I'll, I'll be very keen to watch it, but, um, but so that's why I'm basing it on my opinion. So in my opinion, discrimination definitely exists in, in the Israeli society. Um, but it might be not as blunt as people from the outside might think. For example, um, 80% of all students in the universities are actually Arabs. So that's very close to their general percentage in in the population, which is 20%. Um, However, at the same time, um, most Arab Israelis live in Arab villages or Arab neighborhoods, and they're still very underfunded compared to other other villages or neighborhoods. Um, Being an Arab probably lessens your chances to be accepted to some types of jobs, Though I don't think all of them, but sometimes, yes. Probably those associated with the military or security, I assume. Those for sure. Some of them, I think it might be even impossible. But I'm actually talking more about like personal discrimination versus uh, the systematic one. I see. If you are an Arab and you send your CV and a lot of the times based on the name, people would know you're an Arab. Would it affect your chances. Ah, uh, right. Uh, okay. I, I would argue that, again, I'm not an Israeli Arab. I don't know. So I haven't experienced it personally. But I would argue that to some places, yes. And of course, we it's, it's important to say that 
at least I can't recall a time where an Arab party was a part of the coalition, which obviously speaks to their ability to affect the legislation or change anything for the Arab-Israeli society. Right. And that, I mean, that's in many ways is an example of direct bias as well, right? In the sense that there's strong pressure among parties not to form coalitions with the Arab parties. Is that right? I guess it it makes sense to have an Arab party, but it also makes sense to have Arab representatives part of other parties, which there are, but very few. So, So I think, yeah, to be best integrated, my guess that the other option would be better, but just to have more of them. Right. I think like, I mean, this is needless to say, it seems like in terms of their representation within the government, and like you said, their ability to enact policy reforms of various sorts, they're they're just simply not represented at high enough levels to have a tangible impact. Um, they're represented, but not in the coalition. So there are Arab parties, there are actually uh, four Arab parties, so not that few, and they can have impact if they were part of the, they are part of the Knesset, so, um, but they are not part of the coalition. So in order to have strong impact, they need to be part of the coalition. Now, one might argue a lot about why they're not part of the coalition, whether it's their own choice or, or it's just that they didn't have a chance to be part of the coalition. This is a different story. I'm not even going there. I'm just saying that they haven't been part of the coalition. So it means they didn't have the chance of impacting and and doing what Arab society deserves to be done for legislatively. I mean, yeah, I'm glad you made that clarification. Um, yeah, coalitional governments confusing to us outsiders. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like a big part of what we're talking about is not necessarily a systematic discrimination as much as this absence of sense of belonging that must be very difficult on Israeli Arabs. uh, Because Israel is considered by the majority of the Israelis who are Jewish Israelis a Jewish state. This is how it was formed. I think, and I'm speaking carefully because, I, again, I'm not representing Israel, but I think that most Israelis don't mind the Arab presence here, but the reality is that the Arabs must feel a little bit like outsiders, um, especially following, for example, the nation-state bill that was passed in 2018. For those who doesn't know, this bill was changed over many, many years, never passed, passed finally in 2018. And it mainly talks about sort of national representations of a country. So like the flag, the language, the anthem, um, the fact that this is the land of the Jews. To be frank, it doesn't have any real uh, practical impact on the lives of people here. I think a lot of people didn't even know it passed, but it does have um, a symbolic. Right. It kind of just contributes to this overall feeling of this is the land of the Jews. If you are not a Jew, you're tolerated, but not necessarily a part of it in the same way. Yes, I think you, you said it right. 
So going back to the comparison where we all started with the 13th and the racial hierarchy in the US, um, I want to point out two differences uh, that I see. One, that skin color is something that you cannot hide. That uh, while being an Arab in Israel, you can hide it very easily. I mean, if you move to an Israeli um, city and you sometimes you don't even have to change your name, but say you change your name, people not necessarily know that you are an Arab and you can blend in. But if you are a black person in the U.S., you cannot hide it. It's something that goes with you no matter what. The second one is, while the beginning of their relationship between the races in the U.S. um, was very clearly hierarchical with a clear advantage and disadvantage to, to one group versus the other. In Israel, we it's all started from a conflict, but not necessarily this very um, 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 and disadvantaged relationship. <laughs> just just so that y'all know, it's 11 p.m. where Dina is. It's past her bedtime. It's actually 10, but oh, oh, dang it. <laughs> freaking daylight savings. <laughs> well, then you have no excuse. Okay. I, I think it was conflict, but not a, um, a clear disadvantage um, between the relationship of the groups. Um so the beginning was the beginning is very different. And well, just to summarize all of it, because I think I said a lot, well, don't think that the comparison between the racial hierarchy in the US and the Jewish Arab one is accurate or they're not identical, but but they do have similarities. Uh, and I think most of all, they're the one thing that I definitely took away from it is a lack of research in order to answer the big questions that might be hanging there. So we do need to do more research and ask the questions and understand exactly where we stand. Yeah, no. And I, I know, you know, this firsthand, you really delved into, um, the literature in an attempt to try and answer this question. And I think, I mean, the fact that there's, so little written about it, um, yeah, suggests that, you know, unlike in the U.S. where it feels like all the layers have been peeled away um, and we've exposed it and we're now at the stage of, I guess, arguing ad nauseum about what to do about it. Um, yeah, I, I think in Israel, it's still a question of like, what exactly is the problem? Um, yeah, and, and again, to very, very clear. We're not talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That might be taking all the spotlight. So we were actually talking about something different. That's right. Yeah. And I think that um, your your point about the origins of, um, I guess, racial tensions in society being different between Israel and the United States, but I do think it's striking the number of the the, the number of parallels that you made, um, particularly the relationship, for example, between um, being in sort of the minority or the subjugated group and, for example, having high, higher rates of violence yeah. um, 
also being incarcerated at higher rates. So it seems like while while the causes are quite different, um, the ultimate effects end up being kind of similar. All right. Well, Dina, thank you for being so candid in your perspective um, and, and allowing us to take a much more global uh perspective on this really important and interesting documentary. Um, So I think with this being said, I think we would both highly recommend that you watch it. If you haven't, like, like we said at the very beginning, it's available for free on Netflix. It's a hundred minutes long. um, And to me, a really good use of a hundred minutes of your time. Um, Well, with that, this concludes another episode of Formalized Curiosity. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please do subscribe to the Formalized Curiosity podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe to our newsletter and stop by at our discussion forums at formalizedcuriosity.substack.com. See you all there.